Century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. He's got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. His 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it. Deep mid-wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates through that call. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello, yes, it has been a bit of, uh, well, it's been a long time actually, but a very warm welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Sending you season's greetings and may 2022 at least be a more kinder and happier year to each and every one of you listening to the podcast. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to all of you who have subscribed and all of you who have said some unbelievably kind things. Thank you very, very much indeed. Long may the podcast continue and may we continue to build from strength to strength. Today's guest is unique in every sense of the word. I first came across him as a a 14 and three-quarter year old going on 15 uh, back in 1992 when I started to love the game of cricket and I used to listen to ball-by-ball radio commentary when I was doing my schooling down in Worcester in the Cape and there was a a South African radio station which gave us ball-by-ball cricket of the ongoing what was then known as the Curry Cup which then became the Castle Cup which then became the Super Sports Series and and so on. South Africa's premier first-class Uh, tournament and competition. He's a man who is capable of effortlessly changing from uh, commentating on three slips and a gully, mid off mid on and backward point, to people doing all sorts of crazy things on bars uh, in uh, gymnastics, to rugby, to football, an absolute icon of South African broadcasting and who, in my opinion, sadly has never, ever get really got the recognition he so richly deserves. Michael Abramson, welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Dean, it's an absolute delight to be chatting to you. Thank you so, so much for that wonderful introduction. I really do appreciate it and um, great to chat to you. I've been a huge admirer of yours as well. I think your passion is unbelievable for the sport and it comes across with everything that you do so uh, wishing the podcast many many more years of success thank you thank you very much indeed and of course you and i had the pleasure of very briefly working together in a yes. two and a half day test match <laughs> at Supersport <laughs> park back in 2005 right. which was a great deal of fun as well indeed we did and, um i mean i'm i'm astonished as everybody else is to see your skills in action in the commentary box and just the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you deliver commentary of the highest quality. So I hope we can do it again sometime. Oh, that would be nice. That would be absolutely wonderful. And not in a studio, but actually at the ground. That uh, would yes, be that, a, a real that, joy. That, that would be great. And a pleasure. Oh, okay, so let's. Uh, we're going to be talking about cricket. We're going to be talking about all sorts of things. But I want to just briefly, or I want to just focus on you initially. Um, so as I've just explained to the listener, I initially first heard you as a cricket commentator. And the excitement that you brought, especially towards the back end, because if you remember, games could be quite tedious in those days. You remember though the uh, mm. the Benson and Hedges 45 over games where people would start off so ridiculously slowly, and then towards the end you'd yeah. have this this great surge. I mean, I I just remember you you commentating on this incredible run chase by Border, who got so very very close but just didn't quite get over the line. Otis Gibson, gosh, do you remember? Otis Gibson yeah. was a phenomenal striker of the ball, wasn't he? Oh, uh, it's. 
It was there was actually I think a, a four day game at the Wanderers. It was a border against Transvaal. I yes, think it would have been. Or, yes, or, that's correct. And, in those, and and I was one of very few people in the ground to see that Otis Gibson innings. I think he hit something like ten or ten or twelve sixes in that match. It was just an astonishing attack uh, on the uh, Transvaal bowlers at that time. And so many people said to me, "You were so fortunate to be able to see it and to describe it uh, live to." The, the many, many cricket connoisseurs who were listening at the time. Uh, but, yeah, those, those days uh, were fantastic, and I wish we could go back to them. But you also talk about the 45 overs. Mm. I remember once I was asked by the SABC to, to commentate on one of the day-night games. I forget which one. It was at the Wanderers. I know Ken Rutherford was playing at the time oh, for, yes. uh, for Transvaal. Transvaal um, yeah. and, and, and they said to me, start commentating and we'll let you know when we want you to take a break. And the break didn't happen. And the, the guys in the studio said, we don't have music on standby, so just keep going. <laughs> I remember commentating 45 with alone uh, with, without a single goodness. break. So that, that was quite a daunting challenge. But oh. it, at least uh, the, a few boundaries were struck in that game. So <laughs> it, it, the cricket was quite exciting. But I think for the listeners, it must have been tedium for Sonny Park. I doubt that very much. But those days, Ken Rutherford, towards the latter end of his career, came to play for what was then known as Transvaal. And often he used to, they yes. used to sort of alternate between him and Andrew Hall batting at number three, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. I mean, their, their top three was uh, incredible. And they normally got off to really good starts. They scored pretty quickly compared to the other teams in the competition. Mm-hmm. And they would invariably win. The, the Wondrous was a bit of a, a fortress for them. And they had a very, very strong side. Although, having said that, I, I remember one match. <laughs> this is quite funny. We, we used to, as you've mentioned, do reports on various stations. And we had a day-night game between Transvaal and Eastern at the Wanderers. And Easterns were very, very much the underdogs going into the match. And oh, they yes. really had a, a pretty weak team at the time. And they came to the ball ring in this, what seemed to be a daunting environment. So the game started, I think, at 3.30. And I had to go on English service to do a, a report of the game or a summary of what had happened today, normally during the dinner break at about 6.30. And the Afrikaans service, remember Retif Ace, the late Retif mm. Ace, who was a, a, a fabulous broadcaster as well and a wonderful human being. Yes. He had to do his report at 10 past six uh, on the Afrikaans service. And what happened was Transvaal were bowled out for 61. They lost wickets, if I remember, in the first nine overs. They lost a wicket each, and then they had a bit of a partnership for the 10th wicket. And we eventually bowled out for 61, and Easton's knocked off the runs with two wickets down very quickly. And by 6 o'clock, the game was over. And Retif had missed that. He, he got to the stadium just in, just in time to, uh, to, to do his report. And he walked in. He said, what's happening? Is the game being cancelled? It's beautiful, sunny weather. What's going on? I said to him, the game's over. So he said to me, tell me what, what happened in the game so I can do my report. So I told him exactly what had happened, and he did his report. And then everybody afterwards said to me, why did you copy Retif's report when you did your crossing at 6 so those were those were good memories, but um, yeah, it was actually nice to have an, an evening off in those days because mm-hmm. we had to work alone. We didn't have a team of commentators, so the ball by ball did get a little bit stressful at times. But I, I wouldn't have done anything else. Do you remember that fantastic series? Well, it wasn't fantastic in terms of uh, the results. Well, if you're a South African, of course, you'd have been elated. But as a, a, a mutual supporter and a lover of the game, the West Indies tour South mm-hmm. Africa West in Indies. late 98, 99. And you guys had a very good thing going on radio. It was yourself, Louis Carpus. Who else would have been there? You, Louis Carpus, um, 
Um, Gerald, I presume? Yes, uh, Gerald, Neil, Neil Mantorp would have... Yeah, Neil Mantorp, I uh, think, would have been a bit Yeah, Neil Mantorp was um, also... But what happened in those days was that was my first big tour where I got yeah. to travel all over the country. And I, we went to some of the games. Colin Croft was with me. Yes. And Colin and I yes. established a fantastic relationship and we got on like a house on fire. I remember we did the, the A game in Peter Maritzburg. Oh, I remember that. We sat there over a very dull game that basically that was, had, was rain affected and it uh, wasn't much play and, and we were sitting side on to the wickets and uh, just a lot of things went wrong. But Colin and I established such a great bond and a great vibe on that, on that tour. And we did commentary on those games and I traveled around the country. And as you say, South Africa destroyed the West Indies in that series. I remember Clayton Lambert was opening the innings, Nixon McLean or McLean or whoever he chose to pronounce his name, hit a few sixes towards the back end to make yeah, the scores right. look respectable. Yeah. But invariably, West Indies were bowled out for 100, 120 in tests. And it really was a bit of a non-contest. And, and it, was, it was sad from, a, as you say, from a cricketing safety point of view and a lover of the game to, to watch this team that were so revered in the 70s and the 80s and was such a great tradition to go into that series and look completely out of sorts. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, from a South African point of view, obviously we were happy that South Africa was doing well, but would have been far, far nicer had it been a, a proper contest. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and the thing is, you know, we I know that there were, there were patches of where we saw Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney Walsh bowling well. I mean, they were approaching the twilight of their careers but there were patches where they did still have the old spark and we we just did not see the best of players such as brian lara and carl hooper and jimmy adams you know i remember brian lara getting a half century at at, at kingsmead but he, he batted in a very um i won't say carefree manner but you, you could see that that the players minds were definitely nowhere near on on what they had to do as well I'm sorry, Dean, I'm, I'm losing you a little bit, so I missed a um, large part of your, your comment in that regard. But, yeah, that's uh, here. I remember Lara at, at Newlands uh, playing a, a decent inning yeah. and then getting out in a rather unfortunate manner uh, late in the day. Uh, uh, that's my recollection of that series. But, um, you know, so many matches, and everybody says to me, Michael, you've got such a good memory and you remember all these things. But, honestly, I... At, Times one game blends into another. Yes, we were it does. So much commentary, and it was fantastic. And switching from sports, as you say, I was doing cricket, and then moving to rugby and soccer matches, and leaving a Test match in the middle, uh, England South Africa Test match in the at the Wanderers to fly down to Cape Town to do a, a PSL soccer match, and then fly back the next day. And the, the BBC commentators couldn't believe that we were doing that because of the fact that uh, in, in England you sort of specialise in one yes, sport. Yes, yeah, in South Africa we have to. blend together and and um, don't stand out unless I go back and think about specific incidents in those test matches that come to life. Okay, so let's talk a bit about this incredible ability that you have to seamlessly and effortlessly switch from cricket to rugby to gymnastics <laughs> to, to soccer. How, first of all, when did you realize that you actually wanted to be a broadcaster? And how then did you also discover that you had this incredible ability to, to cover so many games as professionally and as effortlessly as you do? Well, that's very, very kind of you to say, Dean. Actually, at school, I was very introverted. And um, when I came out of school, people said to me, you need to do things in the public eye just 
to get rid of your shy persona and just to be able to put yourself out there and develop those skills. So as a result, I started doing uh, a mentalism and forced into a situation where I had to engage with people and also get into broadcasting, which seemed the furthest removed thing from my mind when I was at school. But uh, as So let me give it a go. And a broadcaster at the time and said, what do you think? Um, I'd like to get involved in commentary. How do I go about it? And this person said to me, you don't have the voice for commentary. Um, you uh, should rather stick to working on statistics and actuarial science, which was the career path I'd chosen for myself and the commentators leave commentary to others around. And I thought, okay, don't tell me what I can and cannot mm, do. Yeah. Um, that was almost like a challenge to myself. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and embrace this. And then gradually I, I started to, um, to, to get involved with different sports. So obviously gymnastics has always been a passion of mine. I love gymnastics. I love watching the sport. So I contacted the gymnastics union, um, the federation, and I said to them, I'd like to get involved. Would you be interested in having some media coverage on your events? And they said, yes. So I started off with a bit of radio. And eventually they said to me, you seem to know what you're doing. Would you be our public address announcer at all our major events? And then uh, progressed to doing television of them, which Oh. As it also, they were looking for a soccer commentator to do the local soccer. And the problem being was that I didn't have much of a background in terms of local soccer. And they gave me a week to, to research it. They said to me, you basically got a week. Um, you're doing Chiefs versus um, Celtic, I think it was, at Rand Stadium in 1997. You've got a week to prepare. Go behind the microphone and do it. Braced it wholeheartedly. I, got, I bought every possible magazine that I could find. I read every newspaper article. Obviously, the internet wasn't as uh, available as it yes. is now and wasn't as up to date. So it's, it made things difficult, but I embraced it and I went in there with full passion and I did the job and I don't know how, I mean, in my mind, I don't think it was the greatest commentary in the world, but they seem to love it and opportunities seem to open up in that regard. Then they came to me and said to me, what do you know about rugby? I said, well, I've never played the sport, but I've, I've been a follower for many years. They said, would you go and commentate a rugby match at Loftus? And I did, I think it was Northern Transvaal against Border in those days. I did a, um, a sort of a cross-pool match. And then eventually they said to me, hang on a second, you seem to know what you're doing. Try another sport. And I went on to do ice hockey, would you believe, in Krugersdorp and, um, and athletic. Uh, that's a story on its own. I went to the Olympics in 2004, and they didn't have an athletics commentator on the night that Usain Bolt ran the 100 meters final. And on World Feed, they, um, the producers came to me and said, you've got a couple of hours, we need you to commentate athletics. I said, I've never done that before in my life. And there's an audience of millions and millions of people. Um, it's very intimidating. And they said to me, look, you've got the experience. You've been a broadcaster for a while. Go and embrace it and do, do the job. And I did that, and suddenly, out of nothing, I became an athletics commentator. So I suppose it's, it's just taking the opportunities that present themselves, when they present themselves, doing the job as best as you can. People know that you can't be an expert on every sport. They know I've never played the sport at a, any sport that I commentate on at a particularly high level. But sometimes it's not about that. It's about your delivery. It's yeah. about your your speech, your language skills, your ability to get things across. And most significantly, 
your ability to pull the best out of the expert who's sitting next to you in the commentary box and get them to share their experience in a way that works seamlessly on radio, especially, and to a lesser extent on television. And I think that that is, that's a big skill that, um, sadly, a lot of broadcasters haven't mastered yet. But that's, that's essentially my story, Dean. And I think, Michael, that's what is becoming increasingly more frustrating for people such as yourself and me and a couple of others, mm. is that we've never, we may not necessarily have played the sport at, at any level for that matter, but we are capable of delivering a better delivery uh, mm-hmm. or of, of giving a better delivery than someone who's scored 10,000 runs or taken 350 test wickets. Exactly. And that's, um, so this, this mentality, if I can call it a mentality, that broadcast corporations around the world seem to have that, there's only, that you only have credibility if you've actually played the sport at, a, at whatever level, uh, regardless of your delivery, regardless of the way that you speak, regardless of um, your skills in the broadcasting sense. Um, just the fact that you've got the persona would make you into a good commentator, which is bizarre. I mean, if you take somebody potentially who's maybe made a lot of money in a particular field and you put them into another field as a CEO, for example, and say to them, okay, do the job just because you've got this track record, suddenly you expect it to be brilliant in the new job. Mm. It doesn't work like that. And in many cases, it backfires. I mean, look, there there are some broadcasters, as we all know, who are excellent, who are former greats of the game, who deliver a fantastic product. But sadly, there are, there are lots who don't. And they think they're marvelous because of their credibility. And they almost look down on you when you're sitting next to them in a commentary box mm. because they feel, you know, I've got the credibility. You don't have the credibility. But I, I believe that's nonsense because they're, they're different forms of credibility. Just because you, you, you haven't played the game doesn't make you any less skilled as a broadcaster where the skills are very, very different, as you know. So I'm totally with you on that. I think that um, there are greats of the game. I mean, Charles Fortune was a, a, a legend of, of commentary. There's so many others. Um, he didn't play the game at any particular level, um, but he's a great of commentary. So uh, I suppose you can argue it whichever way you want to argue it, but broadcasters around the world, it's just sad that they have this attitude that they're not really willing to look at you unless you fit a particular demographic or unless you can offer them something that they feel that they're lacking in the team. And it, it means that opportunities for so many talented people out there fall by the wayside, unfortunately. Realistically speaking, how does one mm-hmm. change that? I don't know. I suppose you just have to keep knocking on as many doors as possible um, and hope that you find a broadcaster with whom you synergize, uh, whether it's television or radio. Be prepared to take on challenges that are maybe not your massive strength and be prepared to open yourself to new ideas so that you can create the opening and get yourself out there in the, in the mainstream and hopefully somebody listening will like what you do and might approach you and make an offer available. I'll give you an example. I was approached just over a month ago by Kasafa, the uh, South African or the Southern African Confederation of Football to, they phoned me out of the blue and said to me, we know you haven't been in mainstream commentary for a while, but we need a neutral commentator who hasn't, who's not affiliated to any of the particular broadcasting stations, and we need you to do beach soccer for us. There's a big beach soccer tournament in Durban. Would you be prepared to work? And I said, fantastic. I thought, here's an opportunity to get myself back in the, in, the, in the mainstream, get people to talk about me, get people to hear me. So I went and I embraced it, and obviously there wasn't that much information available, and some of the teams arrived late, and there were a few logistical problems surrounding the tournament, but I was alone. 
and I was working with very professional people whom I've worked with before in the industry and got myself out there, recorded some clips, put them out online and hopefully it's going to open doors going forward. So mm, I think yeah. the thing is being to, when opportunities do present themselves, go for them and embrace them wholeheartedly and put yourself out there. And if it's something that doesn't totally fit with what your plans are, go for it anyway, because you never know who's listening. You never know who you might impress or not impress. And doors can open all the time. And continue to send TVs out, broadcasting clips out to as many broadcasters internationally as you can, because I promise you there are people out there who are looking for you and want you to be part of their team. It's just a matter of getting the timing right, and you never know when is the right time. So get it out there, put your information out there, and wait to be approached. So you're not only uh, an extraordinary commentator and broadcaster, but you also are a mentalist. I mean, uh, tell us a bit yeah. more about that. And you also have a YouTube channel, which I'd like you to talk about as well, please. Okay, sure. Um, so the mentalism, as I said to you, I got into doing magic more as a magician than anything else when I was younger, uh, partly to be able to engage with people and something that also fascinated me. And I did magic, but, uh, and to be a magician is, is fun, especially when kids are around, they come to you, can you show us a trick? Or you maybe go to a party, or you're around friends and there's nothing to talk about and they need an icebreaker, so they say to you, show us something, do a coin trick, show us a card trick do whatever you need to do. And I found that magic per se is, it's essentially a very boring art because once you watch somebody doing a coin trick or a card trick, I mean, how many card tricks can you mm. get excited about? No matter how, how entertaining they might be for five minutes, they're not going to be entertaining an hour later. So then I was exposed to mentalism. I never knew what mentalism was. But at the time I was starting to run memory courses at schools and universities, and I was actually teaching statistics at bits at the time, so I had 800 students that I was responsible for who used to attend my lectures and the students would come to me and say to me How do you have such an amazing memory because I'd walk into class and I'd say Mary happy birthday for tomorrow and Mary would say How do you know it's my birthday and how do you know who I am if you're teaching 800 students? And I said well, I've locked it into my brain. I've had a look at the class list and I've um, Memorized various bits of information and it just sticks in my brain and the students came to me and said can we learn these skills? So I started to teach memory courses and at the time there was a visiting mentalist from the States who came out to South Africa and Presented a show and I went to watch the show not knowing anything about the skills of mentalism And I thought to myself this is astonishing The guy was getting somebody to pull a random book off a bookshelf that had about a thousand books open to a random page he could not possibly have known which page the person was on and he was telling them word for word what was written on that page and i thought to myself this is something that needs further study so i bought some books on psychology and obviously i had through my statistical background i knew a bit about probability but also read books on body language and how to influence people's thoughts and suggestions and i developed a mentalism routine and a basic show that i put together and that just mushroomed and, and sort of grew. And because I had the credibility in terms of memory and being able to do memory courses, memory being a big component of mentalism generally, it allowed me to establish a show that a lot of corporate companies were interested in. And I developed it. I've had a few stage shows that I've, I've uh, put on and staged at various places, various theaters around South Africa and elsewhere. In fact, uh, across the southern African continent and even overseas on cruise ships. I've worked occasionally doing some shows there. And uh, the nice thing about mentalism is every show is different because it's not like a magic trick where you're cutting somebody in half, they're lying in a box, you cut them in half, they, you hopefully put them together again <laughs> and they jump out and, and that's the trick and it's finished. 
Uh, with mentalism, you are totally dependent on your volunteers, on how they think, on how they obey instructions or don't obey instructions, on their body language, etc. So yeah, I can I can present the same show 20 times in a in a run, and have 20 different, completely different performances based on how people respond to that. So that for me is really exciting. So as a result, I set up this rather eclectic mix of of the things that I do on this YouTube channel, which is called Memory Experts and Mentalists, and I've put on there mentalism videos when I was on a cruise ship a few years ago I just walked around the ship and did things for various people on the ship did some routines for them and we filmed it uh, I've got some clips of my commentaries on the World Cup final soccer World Cup final in 2010 and the opening game which was a huge huge highlight of my career also rugby World Cup finals and various other clips that I've got on there some memory skills language skills how to learn a language and how to make that work for you so various videos on different topics and I put them all on the same YouTube channel and hopefully people if they go and have a look at it will find something that interests them and and entertain them but that's essentially my uh, my career as a mentalist if you like unbelievable Mike I, do you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of um, the discipline that is required to be a very skilled martial artist Yes, I, I can see why you're saying that, because it, it is absolutely like that. I mean, after a show, you, it's, the concentration is so intense, and it's, it's incredible. You feel absolutely exhausted and drained after an, an hour, an hour and a half performance, because you constantly are watching people for little clues as to what they might be thinking about, the way their eyes move. There's a science called NLP, neurolinguistic programming, how they move their eyes when they think about various different things. You make a suggestion, you watch how they respond to that. And all these things, you constantly, sort of your brain is in a heightened sense of awareness to be able to pull off a role as a skillful mentalist. But I suppose, Dean, um, talking about that, with the skills that, that, that you have with broadcasting, you use a lot of your senses to be able to uh, put across your commentaries because of the fact that um, you have to hone those skills to, to an intensity where you have to listen. And, and I know you've spoken about this many, many times before, so I don't want to necessarily revisit things that have already been chatted about, but I, I marvel at your skills of being able to listen and just from the sounds of a bowler approaching the wickets and, and, and responses you might hear from the crowd or the way the ball hits the bat, the sound coming off the bat, you can work out where the ball is being hit, to which area of the field, how aggressive the shot is, and all these skills. I suppose you have are embracing mentalism in a completely different way to to massive benefit for many, many people who've listened to you and have marveled at your skills. Uh, well, thank you for that. Yes, and I, and I will certainly respond to that uh, right now. But uh, I just want to ask you, this is going to be an interesting situation for you to answer. So I have two prosthetic mm -hmm. eyes. So my eyes obviously are not my natural eyes. Uh, my, my, my right eye was okay. taken out when I was three months old. And in my left eye a couple of years later when wow. I was just before my 24th birthday. So now, if you were to do that with me, as you very correctly say, and again, I go back to the martial artist who looks very closely at a yes. person's eyes when they're in combat. You know, um, right. so well, how now, I wonder, would you be able to tell with my prosthetic eyes as to uh, what my next move will be? <laughs> I, w I would struggle, Dean, to tell you the truth. It's the same thing as when people play poker, they wear the glasses to hide their oh, eye movement. Right. So, I would, so what I would do is I wouldn't look necessarily at, at eye movement for you. I'd look at body language. So I'd right. look at the way you're holding your hands, for example. Um, are you clenching your fists? Are your fingers outstretched and relaxed? Just your general body language. And I would use other skills. 
But the, the nice thing about mentalism, I say nice in inverted commas, is the thing is the fact that it's it's not an exact science. And people, if you go, for example, and do a show, and you're supposed to, um, let's say, I don't know, um, levitate an object in the air, and the audience is sitting there, and the object doesn't levitate because the piece of equipment that you need to be able to do that isn't working, or whatever the mechanisms aren't properly in place, and it doesn't work, the audience will go home and think to themselves, who's this idiot on stage who's not who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing? But the thing with mentalism, because it's not an exact science, if, if you don't hit exactly, it's often more believable because it's, you don't want to have a too perfect performance where it almost looks as if you've prearranged things in advance or you've told people how to respond. Mm. The fact that you do miss occasionally is actually gives it credibility. So it's nice in a way when you are flying by the seat of your pants, so to speak, and and sort of trying to work out at least a general ballpark topic of what somebody might be thinking about or what they might be visualizing rather than hitting it spot on, which almost seems too good to be true. So in a way, I have that advantage as a mentalist. There are many disadvantages that you have, and you have to work extremely hard for the art. But um, in a way, they are, you have that, that leeway that the audience are willing to give you, provided, I mean, it's not a case of 20 questions where you get everything wrong all the time. I mean, yeah. that, would, that would obviously seriously impede your credibility. But provided you're getting most things right, if you do make the odd mistakes or you're slightly off the topic, audiences are prepared to forgive that. And I think that is uh, that's a, a nice, almost comfort zone that you have as a mentalist. But to answer your question, I, I wouldn't look at the eyes necessarily. I don't look specifically only at mm, people's yeah, eyes. I look yeah. at body language, hand movements, and the way they conduct themselves generally, the way they speak, um, the, the, way that they, the way they stand, the way their feet are positioned, various different skills. And hopefully with all those together and suggestions I make and seeing how they respond to that, I'm able to at least have an idea of the way they might be thinking. Very martial arts orientated, very, very martial arts orientated, feet positioning, hand positioning. So you will know, yeah. for example, like, um, you know, in, in terms of fighting as well, you know that the person is, is a right or his strength is in his right punch or her right punch, for example, because you'll know which foot is the leading foot. So your left, your, yeah, your, exactly. your left leg becomes your leading foot if, you're a, if you are a right-handed person and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, that's very fascinating. But anyway, to answer your question, yeah, um, well, you're absolutely right. It's, um, <clears throat> a lot of it obviously are those senses of mind that, that will kick in and, uh, and that have been of great help. I mean, obviously, as I've, I've alluded to on, on many, many occasions, the stump microphones are incredibly important and they do need to work. Mm -hmm. Properly, but um, you know, and that's for example how I, I can tell you when Sean Pollock was bowling, or Mackay Antini, or uh, you know some of the newer, uh, more modern. So um, Marco Janssen, who's just made his debut, he's got a as he bowls the ball, it's it's not an explosive grunt, it's a it's a more of a okay. almost like a tired tired sounding grunt, but it's not that. It's just a you know it's just a, the sort of the noise that he makes. So a lot of the bowlers as they come in to deliver have a very explosive grunt. So, for example, if you were to listen to footage of Ravindra Pushpakamara, the Sri Lankan quick bowler who modeled himself so much mm -hmm. on Waka Yunus, he and uh, he's, he's actually his opening bowler, the left armor, um, Sajiva De Silva, that was his name. He also had a, right. a very, very ex explosive grunt. Shahadat uh, Hussein from Bangladesh 
had had similarities to that as well. Although his was more of a Monica Sedes like scream as opposed to just a grunt. And then you had, you know, like Dale Stein and Alan Donald and Andrew Flintoff. So when they approached the trees, um, despite the fact that obviously there'll be huge amounts of of rigors going through their bodies, they hardly made a sound as they bowled. You know, very Edo Brandis from Zimbabwe. I'm sure you remember big mm-hmm. old Ed. He was the yeah. same as well, a big the formidable. Yeah, the chicken farmer. But when he bowled, yeah. he didn't make a... Even when he landed at the crease, I mean, what, he was six foot two, six foot three, and a hundred and something kilograms. But he hardly right. made a sound when he when he bowled um, as he came into bowl. So I was lucky enough to spend hours and hours in the nets with, with Edo. And it was actually very right. difficult to pick him up because all the other bowlers at the time, you know, there would have been Gary Brent, Heath Streak, Henry Olongo, Pommy Mbangwa... I was able to pick them up with with uh-huh. consulate ease, but Big Ed was a real, real problem because, as we used to say, he was twinkle toes. You know, as big as what he was, he was he was, he just got to right. the crease and effortlessly delivered the ball. And and, and I think Alan Donald and Dale Stain and a couple of others, Kahiso Robada as well is very similar. You listen to Kahiso Robada as he approaches the crease; he hardly makes. There's no grunt at all when he bowls, um, right. and it's you just basically just about hear he's his boots as I land at the crease. And uh, so that's pretty much how that is done. I mean, and, and then there's certain batsmen who have their little idiosyncrasies as well. Um, uh-huh. Kevin Peterson and Jacques Rudolph, for example, when they used to hit the ball into the lakeside, there'd always be a bit of a grunt. Graham Smith as well. You know, that there'd be that, that, that grunt that they would have. But if they were hitting the ball straight down the ground or through the offside, mm-hmm. they never made a sound. You know, so... And if you think of reverse sweeps, invariably, when the reverse sweep is played, or even the orthodox sweep shot, the bat also makes contact with the ground, doesn't it? So you you can hear that right. scraping sound of the bat, although these days people are, are able to effortlessly sweep and reverse sweep sixes as well. Um, but it's just a very different sound that the ball makes from the bat, or that the bat makes on the ball, if you like, whichever way you, you choose to, to, to phrase it. Um, to a straight drive, to a cover drive, uh, when that sweep or reverse sweep is played. Well, Dean, that's, uh, it's incredible to hear this because I, you, it's just amazing how you've developed this and honed this technique so incredibly that you're able to be so accurate with what's happening. What I wanted to ask you, just picking up on what you've just said, is that you, you mentioned how, the, how uh, the different approaches that bowlers have to the wicket and the fact that certain bats when they hit in a certain region of the field, they make a certain sound. But how do you know that initially? The new batsman, for example, or a new batter, I should say, to use mm. the a more modern term, which I'm still <laughs> trying to get used to. Yes, so am I. If a batter is a, it comes to wicket, maybe somebody like Keegan Peterson or somebody fairly new in their career, and you, you haven't established those idiosyncrasies that they might have, do you have to... Uh, how do you get around that that issue and sort of working out what things might be? Does it just take time to develop or can you pick that up pretty quickly? What sometimes, what has been of great help is when I've been lucky enough to listen to an interview with the batter before mm-hmm. he makes his debut. So Keegan Peterson has quite a deep voice when he speaks. Um, and so I was lucky enough to listen to an interview not recently, but uh, some time ago. So when he speaks, he has a deepish voice, you know. Um, and so you'll hear, by the way, that he says no. You know, you can hear that. Um, you know, it's 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 quite a 
a, a deepish sounding voice. Alex Stewart from England, he had that real sergeant mm-hmm. major type of voice when he when he used to shout as well. Um, so, but now, uh, if I'm lucky and fortunate enough to listen to an interview before the player makes his or indeed her debut, then it's all right. right. But yeah, I do, I do have a bit of a problem, and I have been in in many situations actually when um, I have haven't been able to listen. But then all that you do is you just listen very closely and intently, and eventually mm-hmm. there there will be something. There will be a little something that will that will. You just have to pay attention. I guess it's 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 like a sighted person watching very carefully right. for the trigger movements of a batsman, a batter, <laughs> when mm-hmm. they when they yeah. play. And eventually, although the batter is very, or indeed the whole team, is unfamiliar. So we've often had people come here to commentate, and they know don't, they don't know the first thing about the Zimbabwean team. But as mm-hmm. time progresses, they then obviously start to understand that this is Luke Jongwe, this is Richard Ngarava. Um, and this, right. the, 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 they are not playing to their strengths when Richard Ngarava comes in and hits the deck hard. You know, back of a length, he's not actually all that quick. But because he's tall and quite strong, he gives us the mm-hmm. impression that he's quicker than what he is because he, he bowls back of a length and he hits the deck and the bat very hard. But he probably is only bowling at 132, 133 kilometers an hour, which is quick enough if we have okay. the skills of Vernon Philander or James Anderson. You know, or something of that nature. Mm. So, so I guess it, it's the same for me. I just right. need to continuously listen and listen and listen, and eventually I'll start getting my my clues, and it'll and it'll start coming together. But um, I want to ask you, Michael. So you've done a lot of a lot of international cricket. You've done a lot of domestic cricket as well. One of the the cricketers who mm-hmm. everybody from a South African perspective loved. From the late 1980s to the late 1990s was one Adrian Caper. Very disappointing in the 1992 World Cup. But I tell you what, it's a shame the yes. international audience never got to see the best of Adrian Caper because, my goodness me, he was a handy cricketer. He could bowl briskish in-swingers and he could smash it. What was your favourite Adrian Caper moment that you were able to to broadcast? And I think I know which one it's going to be. Could it possibly be the Supersport Park Australia game? It's just refresh my memory, if you wouldn't mind. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm thinking back to uh, there's so many interesting Adrian Caper moments that spring to mind. So okay, which all right. I deliberately, to? I was deliberately a bit vague because um, I wanted okay, to see I if know. you. Yes, so it okay. was I got, I, February okay. 1994. It was the second one international. South Africa had just won the first. Uh, one thanks to that incredible over by Fani de Villiers. And I mean, we saw Hansi Cronier really take on Shane Warne as well. But it was a second one-day international. South Africa batted right. first, made 265 for five in their 50 overs, Cronier 97. And at the, at the back end of the innings, Adrian Caper hit Craig McDermott for three consecutive sixes, which was unheard of in those days back in 94. And so he ended oh, 47 okay. not out of 22 deliveries. I, I was wondering... Craig McDermott being such wow. a specialist at the back end of the innings, whether that would have been one of yeah. your moments. It's probably in the mind somewhere. I actually, I recall something vaguely about that happening, but I, I, I'd have to go back and sort of watch clips of that to to relive that moment. You have an incredible memory for for, for cricket stats and cricket information. I I recall vaguely something uh, Adrian Taper smashing balls out the ground, but I couldn't give you the details. So the fact that you're able to remember that so vividly is astonishing. Um, There's so many Adrian Taper moments, particularly in domestic cricket, because obviously we got to see him a lot more there. And 
Um, yeah, massive moment. But the apple farmer from Elgin in the Cape, and uh, he, as you say, he could smash the ball all over the place. But uh, obviously being based in Gauteng as I was, and we didn't travel so much those days, I saw more of the Transvaal side and the Northern side and Easterns and those teams than I did of Western Province or Natal or Eastern Province, but just by or, uh, whatever they the names they've evolved into just by the nature of location and where we were and the yeah. that we were watching in those days. Yeah. But I mean, okay, so that's that's a good point that you bring up. So let's have a little bit of fun and see how good our memories were in terms of the radio commentators and where they were situated. So you and Gerald okay. de Kock, you would have covered the high, the high felt area. In other words, Supersport Park, or as it was known in those years, Centurion Park and the Wanderers. Then yes, let's let's... Yeah, and of course the Afrikaans commentators as well. Um, but uh, I suppose we'll okay. yeah. Then then we'll focus. Let's now move to to the Eastern Cape, where we had an interesting situation. Mike London, he was a wonderful man to listen yes. to. So he would always cover the St George's Park games, and then you had Craig right. Stirk, and he's um, he's dulcet tones. He would be covering East London. And uh, That's right. then if we move to Durban, well, Brett Proctor, from an English commentator perspective, he would cover Kingsmead and, and be, occasionally Peter and Maritzburg. Before that, Neil, and Neil Adcock, obviously, before that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Goodness me, what a fast bowler he was, Neil Adcock. Yes, he was incredible. Um, and, it, I mean, in those days, you had English and Afrikaans commentary yeah. sharing. So yes, indeed. If you wanted to follow, you needed to, obviously, try and follow both. But, yeah, um, and I, I grew up supporting Natal because uh, I used to have very... Uh, memorable holidays in in Durban every year. I used yeah. to love going there. Used to, Kingsmead was almost my spiritual home. So I used to listen a lot, particularly to Neil and Brett, uh, growing up and enjoyed it when Natal were doing well. So, yeah, yeah good memories of those. And then, and then uh, the, so we've done the Eastern Cape, we've done KwaZulu-Natal, we've done Gauteng. Right. Let's now move down to the Cape. So Neil Manthorpe, from an English perspective, he would cover Newlands, um, right. And then he would also. In the last obviously Martin Young before him. Yes, absolutely. Correct, correct. Yeah, I mean Martin Young was was a Western Province cricket for many many years, yeah. and yeah. then obviously um, when Neil moved moved to South Africa and based himself in the Cape, he took over the commentary, and he's been doing it there with um, various other commentators as well, um, predominantly based in Cape Town, yes. But. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, uh, I very nearly found uh, for, uh, apologies to our listeners in the Free State because uh, do you remember <laughs> uh, Mark Sangster used to do the, the Bloemfontein duties in the 1990s yes. as well? And uh, then there was that very dynamic, Mornay Pretorius, what an incredible, I never knew whether he was, I mean, Mornay Pretorius obviously will give you the impression that he was, that he was very Afrikaans, but he spoke the Queen's yes. English. When he when oh, he he, he was unbelievably talented as well. I mean, he, they would alternate. Uh, Mornay would alternate between English and Afrikaans commentary. And in those days, what used to happen is we used to have, I think, three matches on the go in any particular weekend set of matches. So we'd start on the Friday, and we, uh, we'd have the radio station available. And what we would do is we'd alternate in the between the venues. So yeah. what would happen is that on a so Friday, they'd start, for example, at the Wondrous, and maybe I would start, Athletically or Gerald or Louis or whoever was around at the time of that match. And then they would go to, to Afrikaans commentary, let's say, in Durban, mm. and that would be... Pete Stradon. Pete Stradon. Yeah. Yeah, he, to him. And then they would probably go, let's say there was a game in in the in Eastern Province or at 
St. George's. Then they would go to the English commentator there, so it would be Mike London. Yes. Then they'd come to the Wanderers, back again, so it would be either Retief or Heinrich Manus yeah, or yeah. Um, one of those names. Then they'd go to to um, to Durban, to Brett or Neil, uh, uh, Neil Adcock, and then they would come to to um, Dubai, but... Uh, uh, Andre Kutsia and Kurti Hruvia. Kurti Hruvia, yeah. And, I mean, Kurti is just the most incredible human being. It's yeah. just so sad that he passed away a, yeah. a, a few years ago. But what a legend. And yes, he was. What an incredible man. And and that's that's how we used to do it. And when we went Bloom, obviously Mark Sangster would do the English and uh, Mornay Pretorius would probably do the Afrikaans. And, and it would it would move around. So it was really fun. And yet the nice thing is you got the opportunity in those days. You knew you were doing 10 minutes every hour. And obviously because not all the hours of play were the same on every ground. For example, Durban would start half an hour earlier. So when they had their lunch break, we had more time uh, between the other two venues to, to share commentary. And then when we had our lunch break, Durban obviously had more time. Mm. And Cape Town, I think, started also half an hour later than... In Joburg yes, that's correct. That's event. quite right. You're absolutely right. 10.30 was where they start, wasn't it? Correct. And Durban yeah. was 9.30. 9.30, yeah. Our thing was <laughs> 10 o'clock. So we had, the, we had the staggered situation. So you knew you were doing it on your own because we, you didn't have a co-commentator other than in the other language. But in your particular spot, you knew you were doing 10 minutes on your own every hour and sometimes more than that. And you were doing crossings on, on, the, on rotation every hour or so for a minute or so to the English service or the Afrikaans service. So, so what happened was you were honing your skills regularly. And because I was fortunate enough to be based in, in Johannesburg, I had matches invariably either at the Wondrous or at Centurion to go to, especially when Gerald was on tour and touring internationally. So in, in the early days, I had a lot of opportunities to broadcast. So when I went into my first international season in 1993-94, I had already done two or three full seasons mm. of domestic cricket, yeah. which is so important because nowadays you have broadcasters coming in expecting to, expected, being expected by their bosses to commentate on international matches and having absolutely no experience whatsoever. Yeah. And I feel sorry for them because they almost sold down the river in the sense that they haven't had a chance to hone their skills. They haven't, they might not have in depth, as in-depth a knowledge of the game as they think they have. And they're sitting at home, maybe watching it on television and doing commentary uh, in their heads and thinking that they're the greatest things in spice bread as far as broadcasting is concerned because their family is telling them that and their friends are telling them how good they are but they've never had a chance to, to hone these skills so in those days I think the fact that we had these ball-by-ball -ball commentaries prepared us for the international matches so much more and it's a real pity what's happened now with ball-by-ball -ball commentary generally. Yeah, it's a shame, Michael and it's funny that you should speak of <clears throat> doing commentary in your head um, and I'm sure uh, one or two of my schoolmates listening to this podcast will will atone to this I used to drive them utterly and totally mad <laughs> at school because we would sit in the classroom uh -huh. when you're supposed to be you know, obviously learning for a a geography test or whatever it was that we were doing and I'd make up these test matches which obviously me being Zimbabwean and them being South African yeah. would always involve Zimbabwe against South Africa and because I mean in my heart of hearts and in my head I knew that there yeah. was no way Zimbabwe were going to beat South Africa in a test match so but it would always be a situation where you would have um, Edo Brandis uprooting Hansi Cronier's middle stump or Dave Houghton hooking Alan Donald for six over deep back at square leg because those were going to be the only right. times wherever that was going to happen was was in my head. Uh -huh. and, and I think that that actually put me in very good stead and the hours and hours of listening to all of you uh, on, on radio, you know, that put me in very good stead when I actually made my mm -hmm. debut in the commentary box in 2001. 
Well, it's, uh, uh, that, that's absolutely how most of us in that era, how we started and how we did things. We obviously had our role models and new yeah. commentators that we really enjoyed listening to and developed our skills based on that. But I remember when I started, Dean, Gerald de Kock actually said to me in the early days, he said, don't try and be the second yes. Gerald de Kock or the second Louis Carpus or that's the second right. Charles Fortune or whatever. You're not going to be able to do it. You won't be able to do it nearly as well as they will. So develop your own style. Do it your own way and become the first Michael Abramson, not the second whoever the mm. previous commentator happened to be. And that was really sound advice. Gerald also said to me, he said, it will take you approximately five years, five years of doing commentary before you feel comfortable enough to be able to impose your own style on broadcast and on proceedings. And I found that to be very, very true. And I think these days the commentators are at such a disadvantage because they don't get that chance to hone their skills and they... They're doing isolated commentary here and there. Big tours come along. It's high profile. Everybody's listening to them, and they take huge knocks from social media and from various people who think that they're not doing their job properly, but they're almost on a hiding to nothing as far as that's concerned because they don't have that opportunity. And then we have huge gaps between the tours, and they don't get a chance to practice. So suddenly the next summer they're in the same boat that they were the previous season. And I think that's unfortunate. But, but uh, just in terms of doing commentary, I actually learned to speak Afrikaans, which is quite funny, um, by listening to cricket commentary. Because oh. in, the, in those days, if you wanted to hear cricket commentary, you wanted to know what the score is, you had the English service for one minute every hour, yeah. and then we didn't have any other source of information, so you had to listen to the Afrikaans service. So I learned, I, I was able to do ball-by-ball ball commentary fluently in Afrikaans before I could speak the language properly because of the fact that I've been listening over and over again to the various commentators and picking up all the expressions and everything else. Mm. But when I started, I also used a, a tape recorder. I would sit in those days with a tape recorder. So I would commentate off the television screen. I'd have a television set in my room. I'd put the tape recorder on and I'd record. And every when I started doing commentary in the early 1990s, I would take a, a little cassette player into the commentary box. I remember with, that. I remember that. I remember that match um, when we were together. It might well have been the case also. I stopped doing it after a while because it just became a habit yeah, to carry yeah. it around with me. But I remember that match, the Indian, uh, the Indian tour when they were first out here in the mm. early 1990s. 1992. Combined bowl, yes. 92, against the combined bowl 11 at Pan Stadium in spring. When Manjareka scored, I think, a double hundred. and uh, Ajay Jadeja. Jadeja also scored a, a yeah, big double right. hundred. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Jadeja, that's right. Jadeja and Mareka had a partnership of about 300 plus. So yes. I just went on and India were just smashing them all over the place. And I would sit there, I was the commentator, the English commentator, and I would record every ball of my commentary and go home and listen to it over and over and over again. And that's the way that you pick up certain things that you're not aware that you're saying. Everybody has their stock phrase, effectively, that they, they use over and over again without being aware that they're doing it. And I, I mean, I know just watching this last test, I've picked up with some of the commentators, they say the same thing over and over yeah, and over again. Do. So when the highlights are broadcast, you hear the same commentary. It's away to the boundary for four. Next up, great shot away to the boundary for four. And you pick that up if um, when you sort of have edited highlights, but you're not aware that you're doing it at the time. Mm. And the way to iron that out is to record yourself and go back and listen and be particularly critical. And a lot of people don't have the time, the effort, the energy or the inclination to do that. And it's sad because that's how you hone your craft. Gosh, I remember that series in, in 1992, you know, in... in I mean, it was a wonderful thing that happened, you know, and there were so many warm-up games. I remember that game that you were referring to, somebody called Michael Cann scoring 90-odd against India. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, uh, I, wow. that was, I, and I remember there was a left-arm spinner called Dean McCalm, who many people thought was 
you know, maybe would become a prominent spinner, but it didn't quite happen. But we saw quite a bit of Fahik Davids as well, that very talented right. middle order batter for Western Province, you know. But yes. the wow. Test Series, although we saw some very incredibly good stuff, I mean, I, to me, you know, Kepler Vessels, that 100 that he scored was, was very, very good um, in, at Kingsmead. Uh, poor old Jimmy Cook getting out for a duck caught at slip. That was very disappointing. Yes. John T. Rhodes, Brian McMillan, both scoring, you know, very nearly getting hundreds as well was special. That's right. Yeah, Alan Donald taking seven wickets at St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth was was obviously an incredible thing to to witness and experience. I I actually because remember, couple Dave got a hundred in the second innings, and Alan Donald got seven wickets. When I was listening to that on shortwave, I was sitting yes. on a boat on Lake Kariba with a fishing rod in my hand and wow. um, quietly listening to, despite all the, because um, it was over the rainy season here in Zimbabwe, so there was a bit of crackle and a bit of whistling and all this stuff happening okay. in the atmosphere, but you could still hear Alan Donald getting his seven, wick, uh, his seven wickets. And I remember Hansi Cronier pulling Mohammed Azruddin. I mean, it was right at the end of the inning. So Azar came into yes. bowl and Cronier pulling him over, I uh, beg your pardon, Kepler Vessels pulling Mohammed Azruddin over square leg to be 95 not out to win that test by, by nine wickets. I wow. Talk about the best of both worlds, Dean. I mean, sitting at Lake Kariba listening to cricket. <laughs> I mean, what, what more could you want? But, but, but your, your memory is astonishing. I mean, now that, you, now that you bring up these names and the attacks from the past, now it's all coming back to me. But yeah. Yeah, as I said to you, it's all, there's so much in my head. I mean, I remember moments in random soccer games that I commentated in... Uh, Hellenic playing against Tembisa Classic at Moflarong Stadium. And so and, and spectators will come up to me and fans will, I'll stop at a petrol garage, for example. And fans will say, do you remember that goal that this one scored in this game that you commentated on? I say, no, honestly, I don't. And they say, but you're supposed to have such a good memory. <laughs> but, the thing is, but the thing is, you remember what you want to remember. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Like, like uh, example, if you're commentating on things, then you will have maybe something will happen and it will trigger something in your brain. You'll think, oh, yes, I remember that particular incident. And you'll go back and you'll recall it. Yeah. But uh, if you don't have those trigger points, it's all in there. It's in the brain somewhere, but you need someone to bring it out. And yeah. now that you're talking mm. and bringing up your incredible knowledge and history of all these facts and figures it's, it's starting to come back to me so it's incredible i admire your tenacity and your passion well that's uh, as you say it's all about the passion michael but I, I i'd like to talk a bit about the commentators who we've mentioned for the sake of the older south african listener um i would okay. imagine quite a few of them i know ratif ace he passed away in 1996 unfortunately so he's been gone uh, for quite some time and and do you remember mm -hmm. that fantastic producer, one of the nicest human beings ever, Harvey Swart, who oh, also sadly course. passed away. I, I worked extensively with him in 2001. What a wonderful man he was. Um, oh, they were, yeah, absolutely. Harvey was a, a legend. He was loved by everybody. Yeah, and yeah he was. Yeah, just what, a great, great man. What a human really being. Bad to hear about his passing. Tell, tell me, but now, do you, for, to your knowledge, um, the rest of the commentators mm -hmm. we spoke about, someone like, for example, Mike London, who obviously in those years I don't think was, was particularly young, would he still be around? To tell you the truth, I, I'm, I'm really not sure. I don't mm. want to commit myself one no, way or no, the other. No. <laughs> um, I, I, I really don't know about Mike London. I haven't stayed in contact with him, unfortunately. Um, so... I don't know what's happened, but um, and as I say, I would uh, I'd be speaking out of turn if I gave any opinion because yes. I'm really not sure what happened there. Yeah. But yeah. I did I did have the opportunity to work with him a few times, and it, it was a, a rare privilege. 
Yeah, what a what a, and he often spoke about growing up in the town of Bulawayo. Uh, you know, when he used to commentate, so he was from this part of the world, and he. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. He always he loved bringing it in, especially when uh, so when they were down at Port Elizabeth and it was lunchtime approaching, and you had. Um, Clive Rice running in and bowling to Kepler Vessels and then he'd always talk about now I wonder what we're going to have today at lunchtime it reminds me back of my days where I went to school in Bulawayo and sometimes the lunches were wonderful other times the lunches were appalling I wonder what we're going to have here at St. George's Park you know just so nice listening to him and, and all those memories yeah. that he I mean, all, all those commentators that students, and they all had their own idiosyncrasies their own ways of doing things they used humour they used um, their ability to describe the, inf the information or what was going on in the field and they all were unique in their own way and that, that's what made it so wonderful to listen yeah. to this eclectic mix of commentary. And, and, and some people didn't need to get excited to be a good commentator, you know, I mean, <laughs> so there's a natural, like, I love Bill Laurie uh, because his commentary yes. is very fluent and natural but there are some commentators, unfortunately, on the circuit who fake mm -hmm. their excitement. Um, you know, so it's unnecessary shouting or this strange way that they change their voice. But Bill Laurie, mm. whether it was an Australian doing well or a Zimbabwean or whoever doing well, he, he would have that same natural, genuine excitement that I would venture to suggest only maybe someone like Ian Bishop um, okay. and one or two others have. You know, the rest I feel sometimes is, is, is pretty forced. It's interesting you say that because Bill Laurie, particularly in his in his battles on air, so to speak, with Tony Gregg, Tony Gregg those, yeah. those, especially when uh, South Africa were were playing down under in in Australia and they were doing the Channel Nine broadcast, they, Bill Laurie used to come in for a lot of criticism from South Africans because they felt he was ex extremely biased against South Africa and obviously for Australia, which I suppose is understandable, but that's that's the impression that he gave a lot of people. So I'm interested to see that you have a a different view on that. I, look, I think first and foremost, Bill Laurie was Australian in the commentary box, but I believe at the end of the day, he wanted cricket to win. You know, if mm. you ask him what his favourite moment was, and I've listened to this on YouTube, you know, he, okay. he says it was the innings that Graham Pollock played against us when I think, was it a oh. double hundred that Graham Pollock got? I think it was. Um, it was certainly a very, a very, very big score. And he says that to me, even though I was on the receiving end, was the most incredible okay. thing that I witnessed. You know, and um, if you, for example, you listen to what was known as Heath Streak's finest moment, I'd like you to have a listen to that on YouTube, when okay. Streak took four wickets for eight runs and scored forty odd against the West Indies. Admittedly, now, so that wasn't Australia, but the point is there. You right. could just hear this man becoming so genuinely excited you know i can just imagine him bouncing up and down and a big smile on his face and just loving the fact that um somebody was doing something very very special you know okay. and, and so that that to me I mean, was was made made it special fair enough that's uh, it's fabulous and you you don't have to justify obviously your your thoughts on this matter it's, yeah. it's interesting to hear that you mentioned graham pollock of course um he's 274 uh, yes. and 209 where he's I think he's two big uh, double hundred innings. So I think it was a um, two seventy four that he made that that Bill Laurie really appreciated incredibly. Ah, uh, yes, that would have been against the Australian Durban. Yes, not? yes, that's correct. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, so uh -huh. they were. Gosh, Michael, we could carry on. I think <laughs> until New Year's Eve, until until the the witching hour. 
Um, okay. I have enjoyed this immensely. It's it's been an absolute joy, and a, like I said, it's been a long time coming. We met in two thousand and five, finally, which was which. I remember you and me not being too happy about the coffee at Supersport Park. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what a wonderful time we had. So what are, what are the plans for you now going ahead? We're going into 2022. We're going to put all the sadness and the negativity behind us. And we're going to do the best we can to focus on being as positive as we can. Do you have any broadcasting um, hopes and aspirations and, and any potential work li- lined up? Well, not, not anything specific or not anything definitely on the table. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the doors seem to be closed for me as yeah. far as South African broadcasting companies are concerned. I don't fully understand why, but it is what it is. I can't change that, and I can't change perceptions that are out there. So it's difficult for me to get work in South Africa, even though I think they could probably benefit from experience I, I have in being able to impart that knowledge to some of their younger commentators, and I have approached them on a number of occasions. In fact, on this particular tour, I've, I've offered them an opportunity to work. I said, I'll work free of charge. You don't even have to pay me, just for just for the passion and the opportunity of doing it. And they, they didn't seem receptive to that idea. So as far as South Africa is concerned, unless things change or new people take over, it's, it's difficult for me here. But internationally, there are various possibilities. I've put various things out there into the universe and we'll wait and see what, yeah. what happens down the line if, if any of them bite or if there are opportunities to work. As you know, Dean, I'm a very, very passionate Norwich City supporter. It's a long story why I won't go into that. But at the moment, <laughs> they're having the most, the most dreadful season. Uh, they've lost five matches, five matches in a row without scoring a goal and they are um, in fact, the joke is that the December goal of the month is going to be a training ground goal because they haven't actually scored in five matches. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. But, um, so I'd love to do some work for them if the possibility arose. Each team in England have their own uh, specific radio station and they broadcast commentary. So if that opportunity ever presented itself to do radio commentary on Norwich City Games or on any other team, um, that would be fantastic. But uh, we'll see. Uh, as I said to you, things are out there in the universe. I've got my mentalism stuff to work on. I've got courses planned for teaching people in the corporate world how to use the brain correctly and how to improve their memory. So that's planned for the new year, depending on what COVID surprises we still have down the line. But I, honestly, if the broadcasting opportunities come about and the timing is right, I would embrace them wholeheartedly because the passion is still there. Yeah. It's never left. Um, there's more experience now than there was years ago, obviously from all the different sports I've covered over many, many years. So I'd love the opportunity to do it. And I'd love the opportunity to work with you and to work with various other big names in the industry and people that I maybe haven't had the chance to work with as much as I would have liked. So it's out there, it's available, and people know that I'm around. And We'll see what happens. What are your plans for the new year? Yeah, it's very similar to you, Michael. And unfortunately, um, uh, like you, I've I've approached I've approached a lot of people very, very persistently and consistently, but respectfully as well. You know, because you've mm-hmm. got to be very careful that you don't overstep the line and become uh, abrasive and aggressive. Um, yes. But but yeah, unfortunately, it hasn't quite worked out for me. I'm in Zimbabwe. I'm about to tour Sri Lanka, and I would have loved to. Have, it's only three one-day internationals, and I know that there's bio bubbles and so on. But you know, the experience mm-hmm. of being there and and to showcase my skills, and I, I would have loved to have done that. But you know, I I can't see that happening. So I think that it's it's very similar to me as well. You know, I mean, the podcast will continue. It it, it hasn't made me a cent yet. 
but it's the passion that's there. But obviously, you would like to earn a living from from doing what mm. you do as well. And and I think sure. that's what I'd like to do. And I think sometimes we come very disheartened when we see that, um, because that's a human aspect. So you'll see why is it that certain people continuously get gigs, and mm. regardless of how hard you try, you continuously get overlooked. And then sometimes it's not a bad idea to just take a bit of a breather and take a break, because if you don't do that, you'll lose the passion. And when you've taken yeah. your, 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 your break and you've recharged your batteries, you come back and you know you, you feel that you can take it on again. So like you, I'm exactly in the same predicament. I, I really do hope that um, there is somebody out there who will say, right, you know what, let's not just approach Dean and ask him how he commentates on cricket. Let's actually give him a fair crack at the whip. Let's, let's mm -hmm. get him employed. And, and if we don't like what he does, then we'll tell him that. But if we like what he does, we'll tell him that as well, you know. And right. I think that's basically what it boils down to. So, yeah, I think we have very similar, similar hopes. Um, and we will mm -hmm. obviously do the best we can to still approach people. But I sincerely hope that one day very soon that we will be together sharing the commentary box again. That would be incredible. But, Dean, just as a, as a parting message, I would say to you, don't allow yourself to get down based on other people's perceptions of you because out there for everybody who loves you and loves what you do and loves the work that you put in there will be somebody else who doesn't like you for whatever reason or doesn't like what you said or doesn't like what you did or doesn't like the fact that you maybe were critical of their favorite player or whatever it is yes. or maybe for selfish reasons maybe for jealousy reasons maybe just because of, of how they woke up that particular day and I've realized the more and more, having done this, having worked at various broadcasters and been kicked out and been rehired within a few days and then kicked out again and rehired, and that's been my career. And the situation is you can't get down because get down on yourself because somebody else doesn't like you because that person's not going to be in the job forever. Things are constantly going to evolve. Things are constantly going to change. Nowadays, we're in an industry where people are doing more and more podcasts, are doing commentary online. There are many, many different opportunities that we didn't have 10 years ago. So keep your ears to the ground. Keep your eyes open. Put yourself out there and let people be aware of your skills. And eventually, the wheel does turn. And the people who maybe now are working when they perhaps shouldn't be working are not going to be in the job for a long time because maybe they're being protected by certain individuals. But the wheel turns, sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly. But retain the passion. Don't get down on yourself because opportunities are always there. You just have to spot them and go for them. Michael Abramson, it has been such an honor talking to you. Thank you very, very much indeed. And once again, wishing you all the very best for 2022. Thank you so much, Dean. And every success to your podcast going forward. I think you do an incredible, remarkable job. And hopefully we can get more and more people listening to them and embracing them and maybe being willing to sponsor them down the line or give you something back for all the effort you put in. Thank you for your passion and thanks so much for having me. Have a brilliant 2022. Well, thank you very much indeed. And Michael Abramson, you have been listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. It's been a joy and pleasure catching up with you again. And um, should you ever wish to maybe sponsor the podcast, you're very welcome to get a hold of me on my Twitter handle. But uh, until next time, stay safe. Have a wonderful 2022. May everything that you hoped and wished for become a reality. Goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 